Gospel, chapter 2 today, if you would turn there with me. John's Gospel, chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, page 887 in your pew Bible. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord, it is your word which we ask to be blessed, not ours. And so we trust that you will honor your own words, for your own words bring you glory. And so bless us to that end, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm sure most of you are in a situation have been in a situation, and you certainly will be in a situation, when uh, you meet somebody and you get to see a side of them, and that side is uh, obviously palatable because you maybe uh, end up in a relationship with them. And as time goes on, you start to see another side of them, and you go, oh, okay, wow, (laughs) I guess uh, I'll have to navigate that. Uh, for 50 years, and uh, that's the glories of marriage, as you get to see all of the sides of your spouse, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of course, with the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no sin, there's no bad, there's no ugly, but there are different sides to him in terms of what we see in John chapter 2. Now, at the beginning, you have the Jesus that is very palatable to the modern Christian, the modern North American Christian, and I suspect in other countries as well, but that Jesus is the one who brings blessing. That is the Jesus who, when there's a problem, solves the problem. That is the Jesus that uh, celebrates and brings about an occasion of festivity and joy and laughter, and, and everybody's happy. But in the same chapter, there's the same Jesus who is, shall we say, not bringing about joy and laughter and what appears to be happiness among all those who are present. And we have to reason with this picture of 
what John is giving us and say, well, does the Jesus we worship and claim to know and believe in, does that Jesus line up with the Jesus of what we find in John chapter 2? Can your Jesus do the things that he does in the latter part of chapter 2? Or is he just the Jesus of the earlier part of chapter 2? And this is a serious question. Because I'm convinced that there are many who don't know what to do with the Jesus we just read about. And what is the problem? Well, the problem is there is a temple context. And that ordinarily is not a problem. In fact, that was Israel's glory. Going back to Solomon and the prayer that you saw him offer up in the reading, the promise to David, the place where God would dwell, his special presence among his people. And so the temple is connected not only to God and his presence, but also to God's people. You see that this was a blessing from God. That temple was destroyed, and another one was built by Herod that, as you see here, took 46 years to build. And it was still not finished. But the temple was the place of God's presence. It was the place of his blessing. It was the place where his people went to worship, to meet with God. It's the place where God alone, among all the nations of the earth, would accept true worship up until this point. And then we read of The following, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, where has he come from? Well, he's come from Capernaum. I've been to Capernaum, ancient Capernaum. You can actually see the the structures of the homes and and the village where Jesus actually would have walked and and been present. It's It's by the Sea of Galilee, and it's quite a mesmerizing place to think that this is actually the buildings that Jesus would have saw and perhaps been in, in Capernaum. But it takes about two hours, roughly, to drive from Capernaum to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a higher altitude. It's a very long trek. And because it's a long trek, you would not have animals with you for what would be a several-day journey. That would make it very difficult. So, where there is a problem, there is an opportunity for a solution. At the temple, you could go and you could purchase animals in order to make your sacrifice. So, Jesus and his family have left Capernaum. Several days, they have gone to Jerusalem. He's gone to Jerusalem, and lo and behold, what does he find in the place where God meets with his people? But in the courts of the Gentiles, there are sacrifices being sold. Now, what's the problem? Well, there are probably a number of issues. They're not explicit in the text, but the best we can glean from what likely was going on is the following. You could not use Roman uh, denarii to... Uh, pay for sacrifices in the temple because on the denarius there was a picture of a pagan ruler and so that was not allowed. So you had to do a 
uh, transaction whereby a money exchange took place. Now, money exchange is the first place where if you want to make some money, you get involved in money exchange. Some of you have probably been horrified. You think, ah, that's it. I've got some sterling pounds with me, some US dollars, and you go in and you say, all right, licking my chops because the Canadian dollar, weak as water, I'm going to be rich. And then you find out that these people have um, taken a nice, healthy uh, chunk of that for themselves. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, that's because you're not making any money overseas uh, and you're not missing out. Uh, it's awful when you think, okay, it's going to be this much and it's not. The exchange rate. So you have an exchange rate issue, a place where people can make a lot of money. But then also you have the fact that this is happening in the temple. So people are going, they're being uh, brought under what is obviously a religious grounds for buying stuff at perhaps an extortionate rate. And then as they buy these sacrifices, they are doing so in the court of the Gentiles, where God-fearers were supposed to go and be able to worship God. So Cornelius was a God-fearer. There were Gentiles who could go to the temple, worship God. But when Jesus gets there, instead of a place of worship, instead of a place of prayer, he sees that it's a place of business, that they are using the temple and the sacrificial system to make a lot of money. And you see, this was Luther's complaint in the time of the Reformation, St. Peter's. St. Peter's was being built, it was opulent, it was grand, the Pope and his cardinals were living in luxury, but there was a man called Tetzel who was riding around on his horse and he was getting the poor to pay him for the privilege of spending less time in a place that doesn't exist, purgatory. Imagine that. Here's a place called purgatory. When you go there, you will suffer for a bit. You'll eventually be cleansed and you'll be let out. And by the way, your family members are there right now suffering. So you want to get them out? Give us some money. We can get them out quickly. And Luther saw how evil and wicked this was. In fact, I do admire that one fellow who did find Tetzel and made a, a sort of request. Well, if I can pay for sins done in the past, can I also give you some money now for a sin in the future? And Tetzel didn't seem to see any problem with that, took the money for what was a future sin, rode off, and the person who bought the future forgiveness for the sin caught up with him and robbed him. Now... I like that guy. I hope he got to heaven. <laughs> but you see, the insanity, the insanity of not just Roman Catholicism, but the insanity of man, whereby there's something deeply wicked in all of us, where if we were to say, if you just climb up this many stairs, you just give this much money, you just do these few things, you will be okay. We all like to believe that it is by faith alone that we are saved and that it's free forgiveness, but that's actually a lot more difficult to live by than 
the works righteousness, the if I just pay a little, if I just do this, then I will be certain that all is well. And Jesus goes to the temple and notice what happens. He finds those in verse 14 who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Those are the ones who are extorting people because of the exchange rates and also selling these sacrificial animals. So what does Jesus do? Well, naturally, this is what the uh, new translation of the 21st century would say, verse 15. And asking for a sit-down, polite discussion where we can talk about these things. Do you do that in your family? Sit down. We need to talk about this. I belong to a family where the whip of cords is probably the more likely first reaction than the sit down and talking, but some of you could probably relate. Uh, Things explode and then you have to talk. Others of you, you talk and it all gets resolved. Well, Jesus doesn't actually ask for a summit. He doesn't say, well, we need to discuss this. Guys, can we maybe just move uh, the money exchange out? I know you're providing a valuable service, but just not in the, in the temple. You see these poor Gentiles, they're trying to worship. Could we, could we be civil about this? That's actually the Jesus that many want to believe in. They don't want to think that he could get a whip of cords and drive out not just animals, but human beings with these Whips with these leather cords where he's turning over tables, where he's causing commotion and chaos. And there's probably a fear gripping the people because they see what appears to be a madman losing his mind in the temple over something that nobody had apparently batted an eye over. And you see that? He drove them all out of the temple, the money changers, with the animals. He cleared the temple. And he told those who sold the pigeons, here's the explanatory reason. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, a place of business. Don't make my father's house a place where you are going to profit. Don't go on TV and sell holy water. It's, it, it really doesn't it make you sad that there are a lot of people in this world who still actually buy holy water on TV from these so-called prophets and apostles? Or they are donating to this special cause as the conference speaker gets to stay in his $500 a night hotel and be shipped around in a limousine and claim all of these expenses. And you can actually start to trickle your way down and find that even in reform circles, there's a lot of robbery that goes on of the average person who wants to go to a conference but doesn't realize all of the things behind the scenes. The church is a great place to make money off of people. And it will either be power or money or sex if leaders are going to fall, and very often all three. Because the church is a place where people are put in positions where those things come to light. And here in the temple it was about 
money. But his disciples remember then. Now remember his disciples remembering this is post-resurrection. In other words, the post-resurrection account here is John's gospel. And I believe they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I'm not so convinced they remembered this at the time of the temple cleansing, but rather this is something whereby they remembered after his resurrection, because the context seems to paint that picture. What do I mean by that? Well, notice in verse 18, the Jews say to him, well, what sign do you do for doing these things? What gives you the right to clear the temple? If you are a prophet and you have come in and done a prophetic action, where's the proof that you're a prophet? Now, Jesus answers them in a way that can only be described as divine. Because notice the answer he gives. It's actually beyond anything a human being could ever come up with. Who would ever think to respond this way? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now this is deliberately ambiguous to his listeners. He knows full well what he's saying, and the disciples end up finding out full well what he's saying, as we're told later on. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scriptures. But at the time, the Jewish people are saying, what? Destroy this temple that's taken 46 years to build? This massive structure? And in three days, you're going to raise it up again? Now, when I say he was deliberately ambiguous, I'm saying that he purposefully would say things to confuse his hearers. Let me say that again. He would purposefully say things to confuse his hearers. And a lot of times it was showing that they had no spiritual understanding of things. When was the next time that somebody failed to completely misunderstand what Jesus said? Come on, Bible scholars. There's a few of you here. Theologians. People eager to read Charnock cover to cover. You get to chapter 3 and Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about being born again. And what does Nicodemus say? Well, how can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Then he gets to chapter 4. And the woman at the well clearly misunderstands because he then has to say to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Look at the context. She doesn't understand. You get to chapter 6, and the Jews are grumbling because he says he is the bread that comes down from heaven. And he eventually says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Basically, he's accused of being a cannibal. And many disciples who followed him, believed in him, wanted to make him king, left him. The point is, When Jesus says these words, he is speaking in a way as to reveal judgment upon his hearers. And as he gets to his death, destroy this temple, what you find is that they start to mock him with the very words that he said here, but were actually a vindication of everything that he was saying. Now that's the irony. 
In Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, they said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. He's on trial, and why should they put him to death? Because he said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And then you get to the cross in chapter 27, verse 40. And how do they mock him? You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So they're taking the words that he said here in John 2, and as he's being destroyed, that is, as he's laying down his life, as he's being crucified, he is actually fulfilling the very words that he said, and they're mocking him and saying, See, you said you're going to destroy the temple. Look what's happening to you. Not knowing that that temple was being destroyed so that he might raise it up in three days. It's actually just incredible how subtle John is with everything that he's saying, but how glorious Christ's words are. So how do we know this? Well, look at verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Imagine what it was like for them when he'd been raised from the dead and all of a sudden, everything that he'd been saying throughout his ministry all of a sudden comes alive to them. You start to see, you start to say, wow. It's the difference between having a darkened mind and heart and having an enlightened mind and heart. All of a sudden, as a Christian, everything starts to make sense. Everything comes together. You speak to some people, and you're speaking a different language to them. And it makes sense to you, and you can't understand why they don't believe. Christ went through this. And so, how... Do we respond? Well, notice something very peculiar in verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So whatever miracles he was doing, they were enough for people to believe in him. However, and here again, not to be too much of a uh, Debbie Downer, so to speak, on uh, the church today, but I can't help but think that verse 23 describes a lot of belief today, a lot of belief about a Jesus that is palatable, that's suitable, that they can believe in, a Jesus that many people want to believe in. Here's the problem. You may find people believing in Jesus, but you may find that Jesus doesn't actually believe in them. Let me say that again. You will find many people in the church today believing in Jesus, but because they believe in a Jesus of their own imagination, their own making, a wax nose that they are able to shape into whatever Jesus they wish, what you end up finding out is that Jesus doesn't believe in them. Have you ever been asked, do you believe in God by someone? I have an answer for you. Especially for the note takers. Write this down. Just say to them, Does God believe in you? 
Does God believe in you? Does Christ believe in you? Now, why am I making a point of this? Well, look at what happens in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not... And you see that word in trust there? It is the same Greek word as many believed. Many believed in him, but he did not believe in them. Tell me, where would you hear that today? Please. I don't ask much from you guys. You don't ask much from me. It's a good relationship that way. But come on. Where would you ever hear this? Oh, many people believed in Jesus. It was wonderful. Jesus doesn't actually necessarily say, oh, this is great. And everything about John's Gospel actually proves that. When you get to chapter 6, it's the sort of pinnacle of that in a sense, where I told you earlier, they say, we want to make you our king, because what? He's just fed them, he's just blessed them, he's just done everything they wanted him to do. So of course they wanted to believe in him. But then he demands true discipleship, whereby you have to commune with him by feasting on him and drinking his blood. And they say, this is a hard teaching. And because it's a hard teaching, what do they do? They leave him. And then he says to his disciples, are you also going to believe? Are you also going to leave? In other words, Jesus doesn't believe in people. Because why? He knows what is in man. He knows that the natural man wants a Jesus that they can manipulate. A Jesus that will look after their needs on their terms, not look after their needs on his terms. Now I can prove this. Because when you look at verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want to ask you a question. Does Jesus still have zeal for God's house? Or is this just a past sort of emotion that he experienced? Does Jesus still say those words in a manner of speaking, zeal for your house will consume me? Now, if you have answered yes, and I pray that you have, what does that mean? It means this. It means that when you read what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament... This leads to a very frightening conclusion. What does he say to the Corinthians in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians? He says to them, Do you not know that you are God's temple? You are God's temple now. And that God's Spirit dwells in you. Because the temple was the place where God's Spirit dwelt. You are God's temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You are the house of God. You are God's temple. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, it's the same idea. But Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone built on the apostles and prophets in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. And that leads Paul to say, in Christ you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So if we are the temple of God, 
If we are the household of God where his spirit dwells, and if Jesus says, zeal for your house will consume me, what does that mean for you? It means that he has zeal for you. But what type of zeal is that? It's a cleansing zeal. It's a zeal whereby if you allow the money changers into your life, he's going to come in with a whip of cords and he's going to drive them out. This isn't some sort of redemptive historical thing where we look back and say, ah, and today we're going to read about the temple cleansing. And we put it down and say, yes, well, you know, Jesus cleansed the temple. Next week, what will it be? Oh, well, Nicodemus. Oh, I love Nicodemus. You are God's temple. And Christ sees a temple where there is all sorts of abominations taking place and He doesn't stand idly by. He goes into that temple and He ransacks it and turns over tables and drives it out. And you think that He's not going to have the same attitude towards a place where He dwells now? That if you willfully and willingly and perpetually allow sin into your life, he's going to stand idly by and just allow you to destroy yourself? Zeal for your house, the people of God, the place where the Spirit dwells will consume Christ. And so Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that he gave himself for us, Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness. That's why he died. Destroy this temple, my body. I died to redeem you from all lawlessness. And to what? Purify for himself a people for his own possession. Does that sound like a temple cleansing? But isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't just stop there. He purifies a people for his own possession who are what? Who are zealous for good works. His zeal becomes your zeal. Zeal for your house will consume me, which means his zeal becomes your zeal. That all lawlessness must be dealt with and righteousness must be put on. That's what John chapter 2 means for you and me. It isn't just about a literal temple being cleansed. It's about Christ coming into your life and ridding you of the filth that remains within you. And I don't think that it's always an enjoyable experience. I don't think it's always something that we accept But you have to ask yourself, do you not? Have you allowed money changers to take root in your life? Have you stopped being a witness to the Gentiles like these Jews were in the court of the Gentiles where they should have been able to pray but were unable to? Have you stopped being a light? Have you stopped testifying of the glories of God? Have you allowed sin? Have you allowed iniquity to come into the temple So that Christ has to come in and drive out that sin in your life. Because He will. Because that's why He died. And He does not die in vain. Not for you, not for me. 
but he will have for his own possession a people zealous with the zeal that he has for good works. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and ask that we would be zealous for the household of God, for our own temple, and for the temple we belong to, namely each other, that we may exhort one another while it is called today so that we are not hardened by sin's deceitfulness, but rather become a place where God's Spirit dwells and is not grieved. Bless us to that end, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.